Welcome to Culture Plan B. I'm David Jubb. This is the second episode of Culture Plan B in which I will not be interviewing Judy Dench, Sir Simon Rattle or Sir Peter Bazalgette. Instead, Culture Plan B will be meeting with artists and communities who create culture outside big cultural institutions, like most people do. This evening, with my kids occasionally running around and squealing in the background, I get to meet Evie Manning and Rhiannon White, who created the inspirational Commonwealth Theatre 12 years ago. I want to hear more about their work, about what COVID-19 has meant for their practice, and what they think about the future of funding and support for arts and creativity. Now the government has set out a rescue package for the sector and Oliver Dowden, the Secretary of State, has gone out of his way to make it clear that the funding is primarily for preserving cultural institutions, indeed the crown jewels, it feels more important than ever to hear from independent artists and communities about what they think should happen next. After all, let's remember it is those same independent artists and communities who are responsible for the most exciting progressions in contemporary culture. Yes, exciting new artistic movements are very rarely cooked up by large cultural institutions. They are, in fact, created by independent artists and communities. If you have an idea for someone to feature in one of these podcasts or you want to create your own episode of Culture Plan B, then just get in touch with us at cultureplanb at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy hearing from Rhiannon and Evie. Don't tell me how to So, hello Evie, hello Rhiannon. Hi David. Hi, how's it going? It's good, good, good. Where are you today, Rhiannon? Uh, I'm in Cardiff in South Wales in my house. Very exciting. Evie, where are you? I'm in Bradford in my house. <laughs> nice. We're all in our houses, semi-lockdown. And I want to say a massive thank you for, for joining me for today for this chat. I've encountered your work in various places over the years, an old gentleman's club in Bradford, in which an incredible group of women declared historical and contemporary and personal radical acts carried out by women. I experienced powerful testimony by a group of young female Muslim boxers in No Guts, No Heart, No Glory in the old BBC studios at Wood Lane, which I'm sure you can remember. I sat gobsmacked in Bradford City Hall witnessing the deal versus the people, a polemic about the transatlantic trade and investment partnership between the European Union and the USA. And I've also sat in so many passionate conversations with other people who've experienced your work, like my partner who witnessed a glass house back in 2013 in a council house on an Edinburgh estate and spent the rest of her trip to the festival questioning what the hell the rest of the festival was about. <laughs> So thank you for all those experiences. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you both today because I think you are one of a relatively small number of theatre companies in the UK who co-create ideas, projects and shows with communities, often in Bradford and Cardiff where you're based. Um, Rhiannon, you're quoted in The Guardian. Uh, It's not just that we're going to drop in, do a show and then piss off. It's actually seeing these as people's lives and people's journeys. How can we all be part of a journey to reclaiming our narrative? And for me, I suppose one example of that, which just sort of stands out to me, is that I I think one of your current projects, Pisophobia, which you're researching and developing in Bradford and co creating with. Uh, Bradford Modified Club and Speakers Corner Collective, I think, 
it actually grew out of one of the radical acts created by Bradford women in one of your previous shows. Is that right? Have I got that yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. It was very, very nice because it's come from somewhere quite deep and we know where it's come from. Quite organic. Yeah, and that's sort of rare as well. Like, you know, I, I, I can't imagine many co-artistic directors or artistic directors of companies saying, yeah, the idea for my next show is somebody, is somebody else's. I thought that's, that's, it's, really, it's really great. So how do you guys describe your work to to your mum? Or to, or, <laughs> you know, or your mate, how do you describe it? Um, I would say that um, it's theatre that happens not in theatre spaces, in fan spaces that we're interested in. And those spaces tend to be in the heart of communities. So we've worked in houses and boxing clubs in uh, warehouses. And it's usually with people who have an expertise in their experience. So it's usually championing, well, it is championing those stories and people. Well, you, when you say expertise, that, that I, had, I had never kind of clocked that before. But so just to describe that a bit more, what you mean by that? So I guess like the expertise of lived experience that I always feel like our work is kind of about an exchange of knowledge or an exchange, you know, me and Evie, and the collaborators that we work with, which is everyone in the team, as well as the people that we're interviewing at the beginning of a process, I feel like there's an exchange of knowledge and the people that, you know, if we're working with young female Muslim boxers, there's an exchange there of knowledge from their expertise of live, like lived experience. That's interesting because, yeah, it makes 100% sense. It's just interesting because it suddenly struck me when you said it that so often kind of invitations to using the theatre lingo to participate in work comes in a way which potentially is slightly disempowering for people because you're inviting them into your world to engage with you know the art form that you've been working in for five years 10 years 15 years and then there's quite a big hierarchy in that isn't there quite a big power dynamic whereas actually what you just described I hadn't really sort of thought of that actually by working with the Bradford Modified Club you probably don't have much clue about, you know, how to modify a, a mm. car. Maybe you do. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> um, I'm just guessing that that's a more real exchange. Yeah, I think that's a really good example because in this R&D we've just done with the drivers from the Bradford Modified Club. So they modify cars. Basically, they've got their expertise of their knowledge of cars, which is very deep. But beyond that, it that actually brings so much creatively. We'll be saying, okay, the cars are going to be static at this point, but we want to create a feeling of adrenaline. How can we do that? And then they have a lot of ideas of things we can physically do with the cars. So it's like that creative input all the time of like, oh, well, we could light the engine up with LEDs and we can do this and that. And they know how to do that technically. So it's kind of like that thing that people will say, but I think it's so, so true is everyone's an artist. So everyone has this ability to express or tell a story or build something. And actually, when you're kind of bouncing ideas around in a true kind of like co-creation, when it is like, oh, we're all trying to build, okay, how do we create speed? How do we do this? Everyone can kind of chip into that. And that's from their kind of, yeah, their experience and their expertise. Just to add to that, like, I think what's really interesting with our work is that it, it almost appears before the rehearsal room as well. So like the lead up, there's all the kind of um, people we meet along the way that build up to that moment. And we see those as experts as well, because we don't know about that building or that place or that history. And like all of that 
feeds the collaboration too. So how does how does a project sort of grow? I don't maybe use a specific example, but just to help me understand, help people understand how, yeah, how does that happen? How do those meetings happen? Literally, like the idea for No Guts and Heart No Glory came from my neighbour, and she was asking me and my mum to go boxing to her boxing gym, and then kind of discovered there was this whole boxing scene in the female Muslim community and so then started meeting boxers but then we would just go to boxing gyms and just kind of start chatting to people you kind of just when you bump into people on the street and you say oh I'm working on this or do you know a huggy do you know this boxer do you know them and then you kind of build it like that so we did a play called um, We're Still Here in Patalbert about the steel industry about Save Our Steel and with that we just walked around the town for about a week and just kind of chatted to people as we met them yeah it's kind of like making friends feels really important it's literally like as simple as that it's like you go in on a level where you're like like we're dead curious we want to meet people we want to kind of learn and understand and also have a laugh with people so you know and I guess like with with something like we're still here we lo- met a lot of people who might have had similar backgrounds to us as well so it felt like we had a lot of a shared like a shared language with all of our plays I feel like there's a shared language between people where we're just like hanging out in people's houses drinking tea going to the pub smoking fags outside the rehearsal room do you know what I mean just just being human like. I think it's I think it's that we don't see it as like this kind of I think even now we don't we really see it as quite straightforward theatre in a way. So when you say to someone, oh, I'm going to make a play, usually at first, to be honest, they think you're making a film because they've just <laughs> yeah. that's the main language. So you have to, like, chat to them. But, like, people get it quite quickly, especially because we're making plays that are about kind of contemporary life, I suppose. So, like, as soon as you say to someone, oh, we're making a play about Save Our Steel, then people have got loads to say. If you say we're making a play about Islamophobia... And modified cars, people have got loads to say. So I think because of the subjects, we you can just literally get on a level quite quickly. And the theatre is like an access point. But I think what we've found a lot is, because our theatre is quite experimental, and we've found that actually people really respond to that. Like they respond to the fact that it is in a site and not in a theatre. They respond to the fact that when we say, oh, yeah, we're going to use lasers, we're going to do this and that. And, you know, they get excited by the kind of visual and experimental nature as much as the subject so it feels like you're kind of saying to people oh what you know can you help us build this experience yeah it is like that and the rehearsals as well like I don't know like through through the whole kind of journey of the the making of something we always like really like things to be open because we want lots of voices we want lots of people to contribute to the making of it and just like I'm just thinking of one of the steel workers that we work with in Patalbert who was called Jason Bolston he'd never been to the theatre before and he'd never like found himself in rooms like we were in or had met a writer or you know any of that and he would come to rehearsals all the time and he really saw himself in the work to the point where he was rewriting the script with the writer you know and like he was an expert in hunting that was his thing he was a Mm. he would go out hunting and we had a whole scene about being hunted and and he was like no that's not right I'm just going to rewrite that you know and having that expertise in the room was like mad because then the actor's like oh my god this is like gold <laughs> so that's amazing has it changed in terms of that process of inviting people in to your work or having conversations with people that then become projects I suppose I'm asking whether it's changed because as you've become you know more and more well known because presumably when you asked 
somebody you know 10 11 years ago hey maybe maybe we should you know make a show you know out of this then presumably they were like they'd they they wouldn't have known you or your work but you you have you know in Bradford now and in Cardiff there are you know people know of the night do you know what I mean has it shifted at all I think what's changed in a really good way is that we can pay people to be fair is that basically now when we get chatting to someone and we say oh you know like Speaker's Corner, so like Speaker's Corner is a collective that started three years ago and Mm. Commonwealth's kind of like a silent mum really because we do the kind of paperwork in the background but they exist completely kind of autonomously. Before we became an NPO two years ago, before we became an NPO we wouldn't have been able to pay people to come into the room and watch Mm. in that way but now we can invite someone in and we can pay them to be as there as an observer or a collaborator in if you know what I mean. So mm. I think it's meant actually that you can give people a very kind of clear experience of being a theatre maker, being in the room and it being, and everyone seeing that that is a profession or that that is actually a job and even being a divisor. Essentially, they're coming in as like a divisor. So last week, I mean, because of social distancing, we could only have two people from Speaker's Corner, but they just contributed so many ideas and they know it so well now, you know, like, and they know where ideas have come from. So it's like, that's what it means basically to invite people into rehearsals and to keep checking in, like, is is this what we need to say? And is this how to do it? Uh, having experienced your work and experienced, I guess, your relationships with the people that you work with on a number of different projects, either sort of in a, you know, beer in the bar afterwards or whatever but it's there's a what you're describing about the sort of warmth the informality the the humanity of your relationships with people it's like that is absolutely palpable it's really powerful thing that there's an incredible atmosphere and trust that you build up not just between yourselves and the people you work with but between the whole crew that you pull together that is also I imagine you know complex sometimes and I remember at the Bradford City Hall show with um, the deal versus the people, I remember that there was this sort of fantastic, I mean, it was an extraordinary show and there was this fantastic kind of eruption of energy before, during and after the show, which I absolutely loved. But I also remember that some of the cast were absolutely fuming with one of the team who basically hadn't been seen for sort of the, since the night before. It had a big night um, and I think rocked up sort of 10, 15 minutes before the show. And just that sort of balance between how you support and create a community of people and how you put on a show and where those two things sometimes rub up against each other. And I just wondered if, how do you manage that? I think with that, the reason why the rest of the cast were so furious is because we had really treated people with a lot of kind of trust and respect and professionalism. So everyone was really pissed off. There was 10 actors in the show and this one guy had just got fucked the night before and then, you know, basically was not going to show up. We're kind of relaxed and informal to a certain extent, but then there is also like, you know, they know there's a lot of kind of money gone into it. We put the tech side of everything is very intensive you know we do a full tech week we treat everything as a completely professional show so I think people kind of know it's out of order if somebody's kind of jeopardizing that and jeopardizing the experience for the audience and all of that so in a way you know it's like any show though to be honest it's like the cast can keep each other in check and be like you can't can't do that and maybe it's part of the process as well like not like the process for that actor to experience that and to come out the other end of it and to be like because 
you know, to be fair, he did turn up. It might have been five five minutes before, but he did turn yeah, up. Yeah. And he did yeah, it. He did. <laughs> he did it, you know, and uh, that's massive learning. That's that's huge. And I think it's like a, a balancing act all the time as well of being flexible and accepting people's lives because... Like, I remember when um, me and uh, Comrade Murray, we worked on a show at BSC called Fight. And from the beginning, we basically said, right, and, we, and we'll do this a lot in our rehearsals as well. Like, not everyone has to make every rehearsal to be in the show. And also kind of sometimes build the show in a way that if they have missed a few days of rehearsal, they can still come back in because you want people to be able to be part of it. And you don't want to exclude anyone because their life has suddenly got out of their control. Do you know what I mean? Because people are mixed up in a lot of forces that, work against them sometimes and it's like actually you've got to we know ourselves that life can be very complicated so you've kind of got to work with people to to kind of get through that and negotiate that in their own way and still feel included and not be another force that's working against them yeah that's beautiful um We'll probably cut me saying that out as well. Sorry. <laughs> that was quite profound, Evie. I was like, yeah, I was sorry. with you then. I was totally with you. I was like, I've got nothing else to say. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Get that in the book. <laughs> so you said something when we had a a chat about this conversation last week when you sort of agreed to do it, which I actually had to look up in the dictionary after you said it. Um, but you described theatre and the work that you do as a liminal space. Um, and I got so excited when I found Wankers. out. <laughs> <laughs> I got so excited when I found out what it meant because it felt like one of those words that like describes something that you've kind of always felt but never been able to quite describe. Do you know what I mean? And I've used it two or three times on other people in the last week who've all looked perplexed like I did when you said it <laughs> but can you can you talk about what you mean by a liminal space because I think it is a it's yeah it, just could you describe it who said that yeah I you didn't did. say that I don't even know what did it I means. say that yeah. oh maybe you, I said that you what said do I mean? it Evie. yeah um I think it's something about oh god I don't know what context I said it in but I think a liminal space you're in a kind of world that's very out of the ordinary so when you're in a process and you're in a rehearsal room you're in a space where you're allowed to dream and you're allowed to put all your focus and energy into like creating something and being creative and expressing yourself and it's that's what I mean I suppose this liminal space between the kind of everyday and then this very charged environment and I think that charged creative environment is like a potential isn't it I think that's what I meant um yeah I, I don't I can't remember the exact thing but I think what I might have been saying was that that liminal space that's created is created whether you're someone who's acting for the first time or someone who's been a professional actor for 30 years because it is this thing of like you creating something that's other you're creating a completely new experience and I think that applies to professionals and people who are just coming in new to it because it's out of ordinary life so it's like a a possibility it's like a possible space Mm. yeah 100 percent. and i looked it up in the dictionary it talked about like a kind of transitional space Mm. a space where you can kind of exist almost into in a contradiction as well and you can you know if it's like a an argument or whatever you can exist in both sides of the argument you can exist Mm. in this sort of playful imaginary space and i just thought it's such a great description of how 
I guess, particularly co-created work enables that to be a fluent space between everybody. And that's kind of intox- there's a, there's something intoxicating about that. There's something mm. very um, that you sort of come back for more. And and yeah, at the time, Evie, you were definitely comparing the sort of sense of what it is to perhaps do that for the first time, but actually why people endlessly come back to do it again and again. And once you get hooked into it, you get hooked into the idea of creating those communities because theatre does create communities when you you know you make something and curate something you share something which a bit like families that only that that family has shared that actually has got a magic to it and um and I always find it interesting that that actually we limit the number of people who can experience that in a way by actually sort of manufacturing theatre and putting it in front of an audience again a bit like what we were saying a minute ago the audience sort of has sort of only getting such a small part really of what actually the potential is exactly the reason why we build these bonds and it feels like magic is because it's very vulnerable like you're sharing a lot and you also don't know what's going to happen you know you're not necessarily fixing things down when you're in a process you you start to do that but it's quite a kind of vulnerable possible place which feels really exciting and and you bond really closely and I think that is exactly it is like so many audience never know that that's created and also just the the very kind of intimate process of sharing things so yeah I feel like that's probably in the kind of conversation around I mean I know a lot of people are saying this around like lobbying government and da 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 but like this thing of actually not many people know what making theatre is they don't know theatre isn't the end product it never is whether you're making Wizard of Oz or whether you're making a device show it's never the end product it's always about that space and family yeah absolutely um so look tell me a bit more about Rhiannon you did something in Cardiff pre-lockdown well in, in Cardiff we're just starting the process of making a show called The Sea is Mine which is um a project that is hopefully working with a group of young mums to create a a show in collaboration with a theatre in Palestine and sharing stories about travelling beyond your circumstance. It's a family show, a political family show, basically. So our kind of, um, our thing here is like, how do you start a process without meeting people face-to-face? How do you build that trust? How do you build Mm. that community that Evie's talking about? So I've been working with the local council and the youth service to um, with this group of young mums who are 16 to 18 We've been sending them love letters with um, activities. Um, and we're just about to start a WhatsApp group. So we're starting that on Wednesday. Um, so, yeah, I guess we're just feeling our way through, really, and trying to use every kind of form that we can. So I'm going out with the the youth service to visit the women um, and drop off because they get food parcels every week. So I'll just go and meet them, make friends with them. So yeah, that that's kind of the stages we're at with with this show. Um, but it's kind of interesting. The cha- I like the challenge. I like I like being challenged on how how we can do those things differently in these times. And I think it's possible. I do think it's mm. possible. So I'm quite enjoying that. And then the other thing we're doing is the Moving Roots Touring Network with BAC. So we've been having lots of conversations on co creation and how you commission projects without being able to see them what a process might look like, how you might arrive in your community, what what could we do in the interim period before showing a piece of theatre. And I guess like what excites me about that project is, so I'm working on the estate that I grew up in 
and it's never had a theatre there, it's never had a theatre ecology there. There's artists there, because there's artists everywhere. Um, but, you know, the subsidised subsidized art sector doesn't really exist there. They don't know what the Arts Council is, you know. Um, so I'm kind of excited about what building an ecology in a co-created, co-curated way with a community could look like. So at the moment, we're, like, thinking about ways to do that and how we're going to um, work very closely with the community to really programme the activity for the next three years. So I feel like it's quite exciting, but it's just about to start. Because as you're describing it, it seems to me like a very uh, natural process of collaboration and partnership in a community to create and make work and probably is quite... I, I mean, my theatre history isn't very good, but it, it seems like, you know, in terms of when guilds created chapters of the mystery plays or whatever that it was about to a certain extent communities coming together to create and make and show each other what they had done um what why aren't why aren't we doing why why aren't we doing that all the time my question is like why should we be doing that all the time and is it everyone's job to do that i don't know Mm. like is that the artist's role to do that like i know why i want to do it like i know why i want to be in that community and there's some kind of complex love for that community and also um uh, understanding and a knowledge of what exists there and what possibilities could be and how transformational it would be for people to see themselves in that community in a different way because it's completely been fucked over forever you know like it's always you know you type it into google and it's like murder drugs you know like it's just like stereotypical kind of shit that you know, that does exist, but actually there's more than that. And I can see that and I can feel it because I'm from there and I'm collaborating with people who live there and who are from there. So there's kind of that energy. And then I guess, <clears throat> yeah, my question is like for, for artists, I guess, why would you choose to, to do that in a community? Like, what is it that interests you about that place and how are you going to do it and why? I think are really important questions um, for all of us, you know, because I feel like actually in this time, perhaps this is a shifting point for people to really think about communities and work there. And I I get the feeling that that shift is coming where artists are going to be really attracted to working in that way. And that's great, but we have to know why. We always have to know why, because actually communities like St. Melons where I'm working are also very vulnerable. You know, they're very powerful, but there's also vulnerability there. And that becomes quite dangerous. So it's like, yeah, getting that kind of balance right and also getting that kind of, yeah, reason why right. And have you thought, I mean, yeah, you've already talked about why for you, but is there, are there other reflections you've got on why, yeah, why, you, why you're doing what you do and have done it now and evolved your practice over 12 years through Commonwealth? What, yeah, why are you doing this rather than... Do you know what, I think... I think I think in a way the journey of Commonwealth has led me to this point. Like me and Evie set up Commonwealth and it was always about collaboration. It was always about bringing groups of people together and creating work. It was always about found space and politics. It was always about challenging what theatre is. And we got really hungry for taking theatre to to new audiences because we were sick of it. Like we were sick of telling the same story to the same people. And, and for me personally, um, I made a lot of work outside of Wales and I went to communities, you know, with our glass house, we went to lots of different communities that were really similar to my own. And I kept coming home and seeing 
my community and going, oh shit, nothing's happening here. Mm. And there's so mm. much potential here. So for me, it was like, I built up all that experience and knowledge along the way. So what was possible in these spaces, met all these friends, saw the kind of repercussions of the work we were making and then wanted to come home and create something similar, I guess. That makes total sense. It's a long journey then, isn't it? And so if there is going to be a shift and there is a, you know, if you look at the Arts Council's sort of 10-year strategy, let's create, and there is a kind of general sort of, you know, shift towards community practice, how, you know, it's taken you 12 years to get to where you get to. What are some of the things that need to happen to, yeah, to accelerate the way that, people have the capacity or capability to make this work or do, or just does it take 12 years to get to there I mean who knows like I think I think the journey has to be your own journey and actually like from from the day that me and Evie set up Commonwealth that that was my mission to come back like actually that's quite complex going back to the estate that I grew up on because actually mm, I've got mm. some really complex <laughs> feelings about it where you know I love and I hate it um but actually yeah, I guess it'll be different for everyone. And, you know, for some people, the journey might just start there, like being in a space like that. Um, and that's okay too. I guess there's no right or wrong answer as long as you know what the reason why. I think the Let's Create strategy is really great in its ambition. I really kind of agree and feel with it. But I feel like it's the whole ecology that does need to shift. It's not just about where we work, it's about who's working there. So, like, I just think, you know, at the moment, the majority, I don't know if I can really say this, but like the majority of the arts industry is quite middle class. Mm. We all, you know, we do know that. And it's like, if we're going to be working in the way that the Let's Create kind of strategy really wants and encourages, then we need more working class artists in those communities because actually you can't just kind of go in as someone who's quite divorced from the area, maybe scared of the area, whatever. You can't go in and then tell people, all right, we're going to work and do this because you've got to have a certain level of, respect and knowledge and 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 respect that they are like your neighbor or they're like your mum or whatever but you can't go in and kind of be like oh we're gonna bring this art to save you which is a lot of the attitude of of kind of outreach departments to be honest that we've experienced and it can't be that it's got to be like we're gonna come with you and we get you and I Mm. think that's the kind of ecology shift that we need is it's about yeah, it's not where, it's it's who's yeah. who's doing that work and actually, like, encouraging artists to come from those communities because, like, there is lo- plenty of people who might be youth workers or they might be whatever, and we don't call them arts workers now, but they are arts workers and they've yeah. been making work with people for years, whether it's, like, breakdance or whatever it might be. They've been doing this work, but they've never been acknowledged as uh, artists and I think that's also a shift that needs to happen is who gets called an artist because it can't just be if you've got the right language and you know how to do the funding forms, it's got to be like, how, what connection do you have? Because there's plenty of youth workers and services and community services that have been massively cut. And actually it's about empowering those people who had, you know, plenty of knowledge. And if someone's going to be doing the work, like, it, you know, enabling them to do the work and, and not kind of coming in with like, yeah, just no kind of understanding. Yeah. I think Sorry, it's, that was a bit of a rant. No, no, it's true. <laughs> I think it's absurd that people in the arts might think that communities, like working class communities, want a middle class play or they want a working class play made by middle class people from their perspective. I think mm. it's mad. I think it's absurd. I think it's 
actually quite um especially now especially like coming off the back of years and years of austerity and now coronavirus people don't want that <laughs> they don't want it like stop it mm. it's mad but they do want but they but... do want theater they do they do yeah. want to be together they do want to make yeah. they do want to create stuff like it's rich like it's ready like it's ready and i've seen through coronavirus some of the most creative things like i watched a video the other day of a young boy um, from St. Melons, who just got out of jail, all his friends turned up, they filmed him getting out of jail, and then they're all in the street doing a massive rap, and there's like 20 of them. And it's beautiful, it's profound, mm. it's political, it's ready, it's there, it's raw. They don't need people to tell them what to do and how to be an artist, like, it's there. <laughs> and I think it's that classic thing, like, literally, when you, t- when you talk to most people, basically what, what comes up again and again is people are like, oh, you could write a book of my life. You know what yeah. I mean? Like people always say stuff like that. Like, yeah, oh my yeah, God, yeah. if you knew my life. You know, like literally everybody has like stories to tell. So it's like, actually, I think what theatre can do really beautifully if we're thinking about kind of the form and and how it can elevate stories and elevate experiences is you can do some incredible lighting and sound design and speakers and, you know, like make some, and set design, like make something heightened and elevated so that, it goes kind of beyond what people are used to, which might be like, you know, a performance in the community centre, which is great, but you can kind of use the theatrical form to really give focus and power to that. And I think that's been a lot of what our work has been about is like, you know, people are kind of performing as themselves, but what we'll talk about is like, we're trying to frame you as like the best version of yourself, which doesn't Mm. mean like you're only seeing the good things, but you're kind of like, in those moments the focus and the energy is for you so like we're going to light you really well mm-hmm. we're going to be able to hear every word you say there's going to be an emotional score that supports what your story is you know there's going to be these theatrical elements basically so I think mm. there's definitely a place for theatre makers and imagination and and it's also saying like also not being unwelcoming it's not saying that people who are middle class are don't exist in the art like they can't exist in the arts anymore like there's there's genuine talent in in people who work in the arts you know and it's like I think it's about people thinking about that exchange like again like what what can you bring to a process are you the right person to do this are you the right person to tell the story if not how do you support someone else coming in to work on that in that way like I think it's like checking your skills and checking checking if you if it's right if it feels right how do we make that shift and change though without some sort of uh insurgency or revolution <laughs> just because um i feel i was very interesting with the the package that's been announced you know which is like this rescue package from uh secretary of state that is a large amount of money that's clearly been um fought for and a lot of people have worked no doubt very hard to you know lobby and uh land the the lolly and ensure that the cultural sector isn't decimated but in a way as 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 good as it is it also for me somehow somehow summarizes everything that's wrong as well because actually oliver dowden's already gone on record to say that this is primarily for cultural institutions and so effectively all of that resource is to continue to maintain uh, a, a hierarchy and um, the institutions that already are many of the things that you've already described them as and are not connecting with 
um, communities in the way that you are. So how how do we how do we scale this up? I love that idea, Evie. You talked about a minute ago in terms of the the youth workers. You know, do we need to start f- funding and supporting and giving a platform to those youth workers and giving some of the resource and the status and platform that comes with 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 our subsidy or is that or am I just barking up the wrong tree yeah, what do we do no, definitely I think I think in terms of that money going to the big institutions like we all know that move is political you know what I mean and I think what we can do now or you know talking to the institutions or even arts council arts council needs to make those institutions accountable and to say like okay you need to start doing things differently if if everyone really believes in this let's create strategy then it's like actually you can't just carry on with what you're doing. And I kind of feel like, you know, COVID-19 has been this time of deep reflection. And I really hope that the institutions have all really reflected on their anti-racism, on their elitism, on the way that they've, you know, been rolling things out and doing things. And I'm kind of hopeful that there has been that period of reflection because I think we've all had you know a lot of time with ourselves to really think about what we're doing and why yeah so I'm hopeful that you know I don't think anyone running those institutions is you know what I mean totally blinkered I think they're they're in the world and they've had time to reflect and I think we all know the arts is elitist they know it so I think it's about kind of creating relationships with communities in a way that isn't just going in and saying okay we're going to send our arts worker in and it is more about like okay who's in the community that we can work with and build with and kind of doing more of that I don't know maybe this is just being totally optimistic but I think it's if if this let's create thing is really going to go down then it's like actually the the way that the organizations operate has just got to be completely different models that is about finding them youth workers and empowering people and paying people in different ways what would you do if basically the Arts Council said, yeah, we're going to make institutions accountable. Um, yes, they've got to follow this strategy in a much more real, authentic way rather than a sort of tokenistic way. What I mean, what are the things that you would you would you would require, you would demand of a <laughs> of a cultural institution that's receiving a very significant amount of public subsidy? What are the things that you would absolutely demand that absolutely have to have to change and have to happen i think that so in bradford at the minute there's something called bradford producing hub which is doing something really interesting they've got a paid creativity council of 20 people who are basically from a kind of spectrum across bradford and they're being given all of the decision making of programming they're basically a collective in charge of Mm. the programming and how money is divided out so there's an operational side, but then they are kind of making a lot of the decisions. And I personally feel like every theatre, like the programming decisions shouldn't just be with the kind of leadership. Like they could be part of it, but I feel like if everybody was, if, if I don't know, this is me being a bit crazy, but if the Arts Council was to say like, everyone has to set up a creativity council who is basically going to programme and, and decide on the way that this, this works and they all get paid you know, like mm. f- for their time. It won't be a salary necessarily, but it'll be like a day rate. And I feel like if, <laughs> this is me, this is honestly me, like I feel like if those artistic directors took a bit of a pay cut mm. because they acknowledged that actually they were giving up some of that stress and some of that power 
And then they created these councils that were giving local people more of a say in what happens in the theatres. And straight away, you've got a network. If you have a council like that, you have a network of people who know the youth worker, whose cousin is this, whose dad is this. You know what I mean? You you, you widen up your networks. And I think for too long, theatres have been these kind of little siloed places where hardly any of the team are from the city. You know what I mean? Like most theatres we've gone to, majority of staff are not from that city so how do they know what the hell people think or want you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so it's like actually if you just literally make it more local in that way and i know that might be different in london but then in london you you just have to go really hyper local and if you get a kind of group of people you know from across a spectrum of kind of experience and things then you basically yeah you're, you're trusting people to make the decisions rather than making decisions based on kind of okay, you know, what's going to sell well to our audience who are in North Yorkshire, for example? Do you mm. know what I mean? Who mm. a, a kind of posh area who might travel to Leeds Playhouse. Not, I don't want to diss Leeds Playhouse, but I think it's that thing. It's like you don't want to... You want to programme for people who are really close to you, I think. So that's just one one thing I could think of. Mm. Mm. Rhiannon, if you want to chuck something else in. <laughs> uh, I'm really inspired by this notion of, like, having community artists in communities and it's something that um, Stephen Pritchard and Martin Doors have been writing quite a lot about. Mm. Um, and I just think, I think, because I think it's about time and I think, it, not about time to do it, but time is a like concept <laughs> that um, building those relationships, building the ecology, like really being in a place and understanding how it works and the people who live there and understanding our audiences and listening to our audiences feels really important. And actually, yeah, having an having an artist that is from that place based in that place that is paid that is that is their you know their kind of um domain to kind of bring out artists in that place and make interventions happen and and build with the community I feel really excited by that notion rather than you know funding our crown jewels whatever the hell that means I mean what are the crown jewels and you know that money I feel is probably going to go to just keeping those buildings together you know and actually they're just spaces and you know in the community that I work in all the spaces are closed there's no youth club there's no pub there's empty spaces but no one's using them no one's fighting for them you know and and that that boils my blood (laughs) you know so it's like how how we shift our thinking to what theatre where theatre can be, be performed and how we create more new artists because the other thing I think theatre's got to be afraid of is that it's a dying industry. It's dying, like, it's it's going, you know, but actually, you know, what theatre stands for, what it represents, what it is, is absolutely part of our DNA and part of who we are. And that's something that we need to hold on to and keep keep alive. Love it. So directly funding youth arts workers, creativity councils in every cultural institution <laughs> and community artists funded directly in every community and maybe there's a crossover between the first and the third thing yeah, yeah. well I think that's what would naturally happen because I honestly think it's about connection and networks because like say now with um pisophobia um one of the lads was like oh how are you going to promote this and I mm. was like oh well you know like we, we've had we have been using it's like a local firm who would promote it and then he was like, oh, my cousin is a promoter and he promotes like um, like Asian wedding venues and stuff like that. So he's basically got networks of thousands, thousands of people. And I'm like, okay, 
of course, like, it would be really great to work with his cousin. Do you know what I mean? Because then he's a promoter in a different sense. So he doesn't yeah. have this kind of uh, admin background, but he's he's completely, like, grassroots and knows people really well. And I, I think having something like a collective, a programming collective, straight away you're bringing in, like, massive amounts of connection. And I just think that's invaluable in terms of, like, really building something that is a people's theatre. And Evie, you are actually at the moment doing an R and D in a socially distanced way. How how's that how's that working? What tell us about it? Uh, well, yeah, it's got its challenges. But to be honest, we just have a temperature gun at the beginning, so everyone gets their temperature checked, and as long as they're below thirty eight, then we can kind of continue. And to be honest, like it's been so creative. It's been one of the most productive. R&Ds I've ever been part of and I think maybe it's because people are quite raring to go because they've spent quite a lot of time by themselves so then coming together it's like one of the first times most people have been in a group so we were quite aware of you know people's levels of anxiety but actually within a day or so that kind of you know just faded and became a very powerful thing still because it is still we can still bounce ideas we can still try ideas out and I feel now coming out of, we actually finished the R&D on Saturday so um coming out of it I feel quite buzzing that like it's still very possible to make theatre because I didn't know how it was going to go and I was quite apprehensive before it but now I'm like oh yeah you can definitely still make things like we've got maybe 80 percent of the script after one week which is kind of incredible wow. like normally we'd be making some you know normally we'd still be writing the script in like you know week three of rehearsals this is a week one of five so I'm like actually feeling quite powered up about maybe this year is about making and not necessarily sharing it with an audience just yet but maybe we make a lot more than we normally would so doing more R&Ds bringing more people together so having that kind of process of connection and ideas building it's slightly different in Wales we're slightly behind so um we're still on lockdown really we're only we're only allowed to have like one bubble of a family (laughs) (laughs) and we've only just been allowed to like go beyond five miles so it's it's quite tricky here um so yeah depending on the context of where we're at politically and where people are at as well because you know different uh the different people we work with will have different needs and some might be able to join us in person and some might not um but again it's about being flexible and finding different ways to connect um but I think I definitely think it's a year of making. That's exciting. I think, it, honestly, it's so exciting. I was talking to our company manager and I'm absolutely so grateful to be an MPO, like, because, you know, three years ago we'd have been totally fucked. And I'm sure a lot of people are in, yeah, a very difficult position. But mm. basically being an MPO also meant that the last two years has been, you know, we basically became like an administrative machine. And so we were just like in an office making kind of one play a year, And it just became about the kind of admin machine and actually having this time and thinking, right, how do we want the company to be? Like, I don't want to be a businesswoman. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to be like doing all the reporting and fundraising and all the stuff that you need to do. It's like, I want to kind of really look at the model of the company and shift it around. So for example, at the minute, we've had an office that we're paying six grand a year for. And I'm like, right, if we don't have that office anymore, and actually we can use that six grand as like a commission for a writer, like boom, straight away. So it's kind of like looking at, yeah, the model of, of how we've set ourselves up because you do kind of fall into a bit of a like um, arts council template 
of like you should have this many staff you should have these kind of outgoings you have this much money on marketing da, da, da. and actually kind of really shifting that around to be like okay how do we make and create as much artwork as possible so we're really an art company and not a kind of yeah business company which is about numbers and data and da, da, da. so I feel very like energized actually in that way to think actually this is the kind of company we want to have and it's what we always were before becoming an MPO and then somehow the MPO just was quite a challenge administratively to kind of get our heads around. And do you feel confident that others will also break the habit? Because yeah I agree so much of the sort of structural stuff is I think the problematic stuff right down to the whole kind of infrastructure the kind of class-based infrastructure of culture and arts and the way it has been put together and the way the language that everybody speaks and uh, you know the conversations that then immediately feel exclusive actually to loads of people who haven't gone through either a you know university drama degree or haven't gone through writing their first £5,000 application to the Arts Council and sometimes in conversations and think, Christ, what am I saying? Which mm. it does in itself become incredibly exclusive. And do you think that of all the nightmares that have happened during this COVID-19 thing, do you think that, that, do you think that there is this opportunity for us to get rid of some of that shit? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think it's all about just being more straightforward, like being more transparent and being more honest really because I think so much has yeah been kind of coded and quite and very inaccessible in like all you know meanings of the word so I think Mm. yeah there's a lot of work to be done around yeah literal access and not just like going on Twitter to do something it's like who the heck's on Twitter like just Mm -hmm. you know I mean I I don't know anyone in my kind of personal life really who's on Twitter it's like (laughs) such a professional world and it's like everyone thinks that you know everything's kind of created on twitter it's just so bizarre Mm. thank you guys we should probably finish it there unless there's anything either of you want to add or throw in is there anything more you want to say we hope you enjoyed this second episode of culture plan b big thanks to evie and rhiannon if you want to find out more about their work then visit their website on www.commonwealththeatre.co.uk i highly recommend their shows page as well as more information about speakers corner you can contact us at Culture Plan B with ideas for the podcast by emailing us at cultureplanb at gmail.com. And do follow us on Instagram or Twitter for info on future episodes. This episode was researched and presented by David Jubb. The editors and sound mixers are Ian Dickinson and George Dennis. The music is from Don't Tell Me by Conrad Murray with Kate and Nate from BAC's Big Box Academy. Communication support from Antonia Goddard. Original artwork by John Borser. And the producer and creator is Matthew Dunster. Don't tell me how to play, don't tell me how to speak, don't tell me how to love, don't tell me how to fail, don't tell me how to...